Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. We celebrate Reformation Day every year, the Sunday before October 31st. It was on the eve of All Saints Day, or All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, in the year 1517, that Dr. Martin Luther, a recently appointed professor of theology at the newly formed University of Wittenberg, posted 95 theses for public disputation on the door of the castle church there in town. What made the 95 theses so significant were not so much the theses themselves, so much as the events that were thereafter put into motion. For this reason, every year since 2017, I've been considering some major event that occurred 500 years earlier, which makes our Reformation celebrations a little bit focused, maybe too focused, on history. So be it. We are part of the history of the church. We should know our history. In 2017, I think everyone at every church considered the 95 Theses, of course, and the significance of the Lutheran Reformation in time, where it began. In 2018, I explained how Luther finally became a Lutheran. This was before I joined you here at Trinity in Cheyenne. It was in 1518, while reading St. Paul's letter to the Romans, that Luther discovered how the righteousness revealed in the gospel is not a righteousness that God requires of us, as though from a second and higher law, but is rather the righteousness that God reveals to us, that he freely and graciously imputes to faith in those who believe that they are reconciled to God through the mercy and divine favor that we know in the message of Christ crucified. In 2019, I was here and we all considered the debate that Luther had with the slanderous lackey of the papacy, John Eck. Dr. Eck. Luther called him Dreck, which is German for scum. He had a sense of humor. He had placed the authority of the Pope above the authority of God's word. Luther refuted him with scripture and humiliated the papacy. In 2020, we considered how Pope Leo X officially condemned Luther's writings and demanded that he recant, and how Luther publicly burned the papal bull along with several copies of canon law in protest. Luther was getting bolder. In 2021, we considered how Luther refused to recant at the Diet of Worms, speaking his famous, unless I am persuaded by scripture and plain reason, I cannot recant what I have written. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Last year, in 2022, we considered what good use of his time Luther spent in the Wartburg Castle as an outlaw, where he was kept for his own safety throughout the year in 1522, and how he translated and published the New Testament into the common language of the German land. This year, in 2023, I already commemorated an event from 500 years ago for our school's Reformation Vespers last week, or about 10 days ago, actually. We heard about the first martyrs of the Lutheran Reformation. Two young Augustinian monks named John and Henry 
who were burnt at the stake in Brussels because they refused to deny their faith. The Reformation was surely spreading like fire, and the more it was persecuted, the faster it spread. So here we are now, celebrating the Reformation as a congregation, and we have already considered what was by far the most exciting event of 1523. But there are two other things that we would do well to commemorate this year. As some of you already heard last week, 10 days ago, after Luther heard of the martyrdom of his two Augustinian brethren, he was very moved. Rather than write a dirge and complain about the violence of the papal tyranny, what Luther did instead was write a news report of sorts, a bouncy and joyful ballad that announced accurately to all of Germany and beyond the truth of these men's confession unto death and the promise that Christ made to all those who lose their lives for the kingdom of God. Somewhat surprised by the success and popularity of his song, Luther discovered with pious humility that he was, in fact, quite talented with music. I suppose it takes trials in order to bring out and show forth our own talents. And so Luther set about to write a few more hymns. He began with the hymn that we just sang as our hymn of the day this morning. Dear Christians, one and all rejoice. As we can tell by singing it, it is an autobiographical confession of how he himself discovered the gospel. But it is not the sort of autobiographical song that drones on about personal feelings that others need to be emotionally manipulated in order to feel a part of. Far from this, Luther instead articulated the natural state of man in his conception and infancy. The uselessness of man's natural efforts to find God and appease him, let alone his willingness, since free will is bound, and it's really just an illusion when it comes to spiritual matters. And of course, he sang about, or teaches us to sing about, the negative effect on man's soul when he tries to rely on his own power to discover a gracious God, or else to persuade God to be gracious. No, but it was God who saw man's wretched state. And so he saw yours no less than he saw Luther's. It is God who beheld our misery from eternity, and from eternity bethought himself of his infinite mercy and set about to fulfill what he had in mind to rescue us. He sent his eternally begotten son, as Luther puts it in his original German, to strangle death to death, that we might live with him forever. In obedience to his father, the kind of obedience that agrees with his father, willing and excited obedience, the eternal word of God was made flesh to be our brother. My brother, Luther wrote, my brother, he wrote, and invited all Germany to sing it with him. The faith that tells a story of God's mercy toward all humanity is a story that each member of the human race can sing for himself. And this is because Jesus says to each of you and to all of us individually, hold on to me. In me thou wilt succeed because I suffer everything for thee. I wrestle for thee. I am thine, and thou art mine, and where I remain, thou shalt be, and the foe shall not divide us.
my unrhyming translation. The church's song is your song. And Luther's song is the whole church's song. And this is not because Luther's life story is so similar to ours. It is because his need was the same as ours. And he didn't sing about his life story. In order for you to become a part of it, he sang of Christ to those whose lives Christ has made his own. Luther's natural powers were the same as ours, and God's grace toward him is his grace toward us. And this is what Luther sang about. He sang what the Bible teaches to all nations. The church's song is universal precisely because it addresses and meets the needs of each and every individual. So 2023 marks for us the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's beginning to reform Christian hymnody. And we truly thank God for his contributions. For this reason, every single hymn we sing today, including during communion, was written by Martin Luther. The second event, which might explain one of our communion hymns that we commemorate today, 500 years later, is related to this universal and individual scope of God's grace. It was in 1523 that Luther set about to reform and simplify the rite of holy baptism that had been in use throughout the church, throughout the Middle Ages. The first change he made was to translate it from Latin into German. He saw a terrible lack of reverence for the sacrament of baptism and figured that people would take it more seriously if they knew what the words meant. Go figure. And speaking of words, Luther considered there to be way too many. Over the years, many little religious rituals were added to the rite of holy baptism. Things like blowing under the eyes and rubbing salt here and oil there and even the priest rubbing a little of his own spittle behind the ears of the baby being baptized. Think of Jesus when he loosed the tongue of the deaf mute in Mark chapter 7. So it was all very much derived from things in the Bible. And it was all actually quite beautiful, I suppose, if you had the patience for it and if the people understood it. But it was distracting, and the people didn't understand it. Everyone knew that baptism was the special rite whereby one was brought into church membership. But how poorly it was understood that baptism was a gracious, lavish washing away of sin and new birth in the Holy Spirit. Everyone knew that all people had to be baptized, but folks scarcely understood what comfort and assurance baptism meant for each of them as individual children of God. Now, we shouldn't mock the pious traditions of our fathers, even if they did get a little out of control. But we should be free to dispose of such practices if they are no longer helpful in encouraging piety. Some serious paring and pruning was needed. Since baptism is nothing more than simple water in the word of Christ, Luther worked hard to put the focus back onto the command and promise that Jesus attached to the water. He simplified the rite of baptism to show as clearly as possible that the initiating rite of entrance into the church was first and foremost the means of grace it was meant to be for each one of the church's members. What is interesting, though, 
with as much as Luther worked in 1523 and then again later in 1526, even then, to simplify the rite of holy baptism, at no point did he remove what is likely the most offensive part to modern sensibilities. He kept the part of the service that even our newest hymnal could not manage to keep. And that is the exorcism. The depart thou unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit. You might notice that I throw that in myself. Our right today keeps the part where the one being baptized renounces the devil and all his works and all his ways. But Luther would not even give up the public and bold command for the devil and all unclean spirits to depart and relinquish their claim on the child being born again. And it was included in the rite three times. Oh, it sounds so superstitious, I suppose. It sounds so medieval. It sounds so backwards and simple to suppose that a newborn child undergoing the rite of holy baptism should first be exercised and freed from demonic control. It sounds so biblical. It sounds like Luther actually believed that he was fast bound in Satan's chains and that he really was conceived in sin and born under the power of the evil one. It sounds like he expected us to take it seriously too. Now to be sure, exorcism is not necessary as a part of baptism to be affected since, of course, it is by the nature of baptism included in baptism without the extra part of the rite. And Luther never said it was necessary, and neither do we because the Bible doesn't say so because Jesus didn't say so. But all these embellishments to the rite of baptism are not meant to do something extra beyond baptism itself. They were meant to help teach what baptism does all by itself. And that's the point. Isn't this the point of all embellishment? Not to make effective, but to emphasize what is effective. Decorating a Thanksgiving table doesn't make the food taste better or more nourishing, but it helps remind the whole family how seriously we should take the occasion It teaches or reminds us that we are here especially to be thankful. And so it is with the embellishments in the church. Our vestments, that's what I wear, and the pyramids that cover the altar. Even the, the vessels, everything, the organ itself that accompanies us, the stained glass windows that remind us. Whatever else is clearly meant to teach is clearly not meant to accomplish something, but to impress upon all of us what important things we are to expect God to accomplish. The reason we don't keep every baptism as simple as possible and just sprinkle water with the word or then maybe, maybe say a prayer, which should be sufficient, is not because this isn't enough to do what Jesus told us to do. It is. But we don't make it so simple because there is need for us to be taught. By keeping the exorcism as he did in the church's rite of baptism, Luther was teaching that being born again by water and the word is for children, but it is no child's play. We are declaring war with the devil. 
And what is more, baptism, as Jesus instituted it for us, gives us victory over the devil and all his evil and very real hordes. That is, if we remain in his word and his word abides in us. Baptism saves, not as an addition to faith, but because we are saved by faith. Baptism picks a fight with the devil by giving us the promise God's gra- of God's grace and mercy and salvation to hold on to as we fight. Baptism teaches. St. John the Baptism, Baptist was found in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. He was preaching a baptism. And we should preach baptism too. To preach baptism includes the simple application of water and the word. But it also includes everything else we need to hear. Preaching baptism means that we continue to teach God's children all that God would have them know throughout life. St. John the Baptist came in the power and spirit of Elijah, as Malachi promised in his last verses of the Old Testament, in order to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or as the angel Gabriel announces in fulfillment of this prophecy, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. This is why we preach baptism. It turns the hearts of disobedient children to the wisdom of our fathers and teaches that in Christ it is all fulfilled. Baptism teaches. It teaches us about God's judgment against all flesh. There's something wrong with our first birth. Our flesh must be drowned and die daily. This is the very first of the 95 Theses, in fact. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This life of repentance means that we turn daily from our natural powers and trust in the power of Jesus. For there is nothing wrong with our Savior's birth like there is with ours. He was born holy and pure and lived a perfectly obedient life. He suffered death in order to remove all judgment from us. He bore it in himself, and he joins us to his holy birth, life, death, and resurrection. He who battled the devil after his own baptism and defeated all his temptations also joins us and our children in our baptism. He gives us power to resist temptation, not by magically putting into us some holiness that we must tap into, but by giving us peace with God and a good conscience. He gives us his Holy Spirit who bears witness with our spirits that we are his children, children of the Heavenly Father with whom we are at peace through the blood of his Son. There is no magic here. There is no superstition. But there is divine power that takes seriously the spiritual enemies that still exist and hate us. And there's enough to learn from our baptism to listen to for the rest of our lives. Come ye children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. If we embellish the rite of baptism, 
It is because there is so much our baptism teaches us and because we want to remember how important it is and we feel in our flesh a resistance and a lagging and a loosening of our grip. And for this reason, we also embellish and decorate our whole worship so that we may tighten our grip, not only with our hands metaphorically, but with our hearts in faith. And so we sing. Now, modern man sneers and scoffs at the exorcism. And go figure. They sneer and scoff at the power of Christ to save. But we take seriously our need for the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. And so we sing about it. There is no greater way to embellish what God does to create and strengthen and sharpen and renew our faith than with music and singing, because nothing helps us better than music to train our hearts and minds to embrace the gospel. That's what music's for. Next to the word, music is God's greatest gift to us, Luther often said. But its power to engage the heart and soul of man by its power, singing invigorates us in our fight against the devil. The devil fights by means of false doctrine. That is why our music is not filled with merely testimonials and emotional expressions. It is filled instead with clear truth from God's holy word. That is the hallmark of a good Lutheran hymn. But we can all sing God's word. We may not always be able to get onto one another's emotional trains, but we can all teach one another. Jesus never commanded anyone to publicly share personal stories of conversion, but he commanded his ministers to preach the gospel and to baptize all nations. Our baptism unites us to Christ. Our song and all else with which we adorn the divine service unites us to one another in our praise of him. Who has saved us. We sing with grace in our hearts, as the Apostle tells us too, because the word of Christ dwells in our hearts richly. We sing to one another with spiritual hymns, songs, and psalms, because we acknowledge the power of God's word to save us from sin, death, and hell. But beware. Music is powerful. The intrinsic power of music is to drive things into the heart of man. Music opens man's heart and makes his heart eager to receive and invite whatever the music is carrying. Beware. We should be extremely careful. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, Jesus said. If, a mus if music is a powerful tool within the kingdom, so it is also a powerful tool against the kingdom. The world's song can be sweet. It can croon and delight and seduce or else it can give pleasant expression to the frustrations and anger that you yourself might feel. As the old country song asks, boy, can you make folks feel what you feel inside? And when it does, it's mighty powerful. There's the mark of a clever singer. There's a mark of a voice that wants to teach you something. But what man feels is not always good. And what man would teach you is not always good. Because the world's song comes from the heart of man that is fast bound in Satan's chains and helpless to overcome the greatest enemy we face. Hearts enslaved 
believe lies. And so they sing of lies and false freedom. This is why they sing of such lewdness and with such artificial excitement. Jesus, therefore, likens this generation, his generation, and ours. The generation of unregenerated flesh and blood to children singing, calling out to one another, we've played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourn to you and you did not lament. In other words, they expect God to obey their hearts just as they can get all people to follow whatever beat they are drumming. But God won't march. John came denying their song by commanding repentance, and they accused him of hating joy and dancing. Jesus came denying their dirge by bestowing forgiveness, and they accused him of hating the solemnity of human existence. But wisdom is justified by her children. We too will be accused as they. But our song remains our comfort because, and insofar as, it conveys the truth and gives beautiful and persuasive expression to the hope we have in Jesus. We will be accused of hating joy when we command repentance. We will be accused of despising their earthly sorrows when we rejoice even in the midst of persecution. But we still have a song to sing. Music is justified not by how it makes you feel in this moment or that, or even how much it might remain with you and stir your heart so many years later. No, but for how it warns and comforts God's children. Music is to prepare us to lay hold of what God's word says and to aid us in tenaciously refusing to let it go. To violently, as it were, rush to him whose song has taught us to trust in his God and ours, in his Father and ours. The violent take to this song by force. That's us. We won't give up the songs we sing because it proclaims to us and persuades our hearts to love the beauty of our salvation. Music is justified by its purpose in teaching us how we are justified by wisdom. And we are the children of wisdom. Our song justifies wisdom because we sing of the foolishness of, of the cross that God has taught us to know and love. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.